KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. Hi fam, it's Dylan's mum, Deborah. This is Dylan Friend. He gives you a back rub. This is, you know, going well, Brian. Oh, special. Get comfortable and uncomfortable. Just keep showing up and find a way. Cam was so nervous he couldn't swallow water. Handing him a sheet of paper with six names and said, Chief, we've got to cut these six blokes. Wow, shut up. I've just been barbed by Stingray, mate. I'm just yelling, oh, you saved my life, you saved my life, you saved my life. Thank you, thank you. I spent the last, I think it was a couple of weeks in jail. The deepest, darkest moments often bring about our biggest highs. G'day guys, how are you? It's Dylan here. I hope you're enjoying your break or your holiday, wherever you are. I miss you, I love you, and uh, really excited for a big 2024. But before we move on, we've put together a best of Dylan Friends Education and Inspiration. Now, geez, there's a lot that fit in this uh, bloody segment, but uh, we'll try and get as many as we can, which has been really, really cool. So Darcy and Mon have done a mountain of work to go and pick their favourite bits of the year and the favourite bits that you guys have um, you know, put in and maybe some other bits you haven't heard yet uh, to go. So the, the whole point of this is actually to recap the year. You might have missed some that you know you haven't seen the name and you know you might really enjoy once you know what they're about. So yeah, this is it. First up, Emma Murray, 177 Part A and Part B, but there's no better way to start year with Emma Murray. We're actually going to do that in 2024 again because she just is the GOAT. Um, Make sure you listen to this episode. It's such a good time to reflect and, and go over some things over this sort of period. But we spoke about self-regulation. You know, I was sort of going through a bit of anxiety stuff uh, in that year and how it can serve you in positive ways. We spoke about functional freezing, um, freeze until the threat passes, going through motion or back into comfortable patterns and being used to being overwhelmed or stressed, uh, retraining ourselves to learn, just just be still, which is, is crazy because it actually really did help a lot. And this episode went for like two hours as part A, part B, and there's so many other little bits and pieces in here that are so vital to pick up on, so I couldn't recommend that one enough. That's Emma Murray 177, part A and part B. It's just interesting, isn't it? Because like anyone out there that's, you know, gets anxious, you you feel it first before you, you think it. You feel it first. And you and just get that tr- overarching feeling in your chest and you're just like, fucking hell. And then it goes to your head, you know, not the other yeah. way. I want people this year to think of that like an alarm system in their body. And imagine we've got two alarm systems, like we've got a background alarm system and a foreground alarm system. Mm-hmm. And so when you and I go out into the world, let's say we go to cross the road and a car nearly hits us, that foreground alarm system goes off and then it calms down again. You know, we take a few breaths, we check in on our environment, we're safe, that calms down. But for a number of people, that background alarm system is on constantly. We're very used to that feeling of having slightly tight shoulders, slightly short breath, being a bit hypervigilant around people pleasing and doing the right thing and getting my work done. We're sitting in that state. 
And then something actually happens. So our boss calls us in for a meeting or, you know, there's an accident on site when we're working or as an athlete we get dropped and that foreground alarm goes off but it doesn't settle back down because the background alarm's going. So now we're screwed because we don't have this ability to regulate ourselves and this alarm is constantly going off in our body. And then we are sitting behind a screen and not moving. And so this alarm is just going because if you think about a caveman, when its alarm goes off that there's a tiger there, we do something about it. We run towards a you know, the tiger or we run away or we freeze or we do something to take action. But we have these alarms going off on us in us all the time every time and people are watching news, our social media feed, it's this alarm is just going and going and going. And then we sit online all day and we're not moving our body and we're not looking up and we're not getting sunlight and we're not opening our breath. And I'm so, I'm painting a very doomsday picture, well, aren't I? But it's yeah. <laughs> oh, to be honest, it's so like, real, deal. It like right, people are struggling. It's really real. I'll be honest. Like I've been really struggling the last like month just with like that. Like I, I watch the news and I'm like fuck, and just feel you know it triggers something in my body and just feel tight and I don't know. I've been I have really struggled to be able to just like regulate and bring back Yeah, you back just down. made a comment before when we were talking. You said, mm. I've been struggling with anxiety lately. Yeah, just I don't know what it is. Is so that crazy. new for you? It's not like I've been since, you know, in sport I had a lot of anxiety, but um, since leaving it's been okay. But now, I don't know, I just find myself just like really all of a sudden just freaking out over things. And it's more for me, it's like, you know, the book I'll, we're referencing a lot of stuff, but for me it's like a form of self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. I think, and it even goes back to the thing before about going, I don't want you to interview me because, you know, <laughs> like it's like I'm a flog <laughs> and like, you know, I probably the language where I'm so like big on being able to talk to yourself and be able to pump yourself up, like I've really lost that mm-hmm. and probably not being my own best friend enough and you just get in, like I feel like I'm one of those people you said before that's always quite, you know, I have that anxious side of me, which to be honest has actually served me in great mm-hmm. stead. Like it's not a, a bad thing. It's actually served me a lot of my life, but then there's the other side when it probably ticks over the other scale and you you struggle to control it a bit more. Yeah, it's like an anxious reaction, like that fight and flight response serves us incredible well, mm. but incredibly well. That's why we have it as humans. You know, it keeps us alive. It keeps us safe. So, you know, it can propel you in a football game. Um, but when that background alarm never calms down, then we're constantly in this hypervigilant stage. Mm. We get no rest. We get no recharge. It, it wears us out. And what first is like this, you know, really motivating and it makes me move quickly and do things fast and tick off my to-do list, eventually for some people they can get exhausted and now they're lying in bed and they're flat and they're heavy and they're tired and they've got very depressive state. But Mm. what is worse is it's called functional freeze. So think of an animal in the wild when a predator comes, they freeze and they freeze in that state until the threat passes. What's happened to us is that in our workplaces, we can't fight people and we can't always run away. So we've got really good at this freeze response, which is just procrastination, um, not making a decision, you know, just even though social media, I'm 
doing something. I'm actually frozen in the work I'm supposed mm. to do. But once that immediate threat passes, we sort of come out of that free state a little bit, but we're still sort of in it. And now we're in functional free state where I am people-pleasing, perfectionism, like like I'm watching over myself. I'm watching myself just tick off my to-do list, get it done. I'm numb to my life. I'm, you know, just moving through the motions of my life because really I'm in this free state. And so I believe all of the online working from home is making us in this functional free state, just sit at my desk, tick it off, get on the online meetings and, you know, I'm watching my world unfold, but I'm not in it. I'm not living it. I'm not experiencing the joy Mm. and I'm numb to the pain. So I'm just flatlining everything. Now, for someone who's on a, you know, work site, you're like, well, I am moving my body. Yeah, but you're still, you're just going through the motions. Your body's sore. It's full of inflammation. You're not connected to why you're there or what you're trying to do. You're just ticking the job list off, getting done so that you can get home to your beer or whatever it is. And it, it can go from serving you well to not serving you well. I would question with you that your change in life circumstances is driving a hypervigilance around the world, your work. You're becoming a dad, right? And so now it's like I've got to bring a child into this world. And do you know what's also really funny that's not funny, but it's like, you know, we can talk about it later, but like obviously the last sort of 12, 24 months has been challenging in a way of like, you know, I've had some stuff going on with my dad and then the IVF stuff with Jazz. And now that those sort of things are going really well, I'm like, I don't have anything to fucking worry about anymore. So why don't we just overthink everything you've ever done in your life and try and find something? Like I'm I'm trying to personally just find something to like stress about. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what your book, your self-sabotage mm. book talks about, but, you know, we get very familiar to that anxious feeling. We mm. get very familiar with busyness. We get very familiar with overwhelm. And so when we're not in that emotional state, it feels uncomfortable for us. So it's like we put ourselves back into it because that's our comfort. That's Mm. what we know. And, um, you know, I have a daughter, she's just finished her law degree. You know, she's an incredible job, you know, valedictorian of Bond and off to a big top tier law firm. But she's been in this state of people pleasing anxiety for a long time. And she had the year off this year and watching her and it was me forcing her to say, no, you're not doing it. She's had some travel, but around that travel, it's like, you're not doing anything today. You are just resting, going in the sauna, catching up with friends. That was so uncomfortable for her because she's used to being in a state of overwhelm and busyness. Yeah. And it yeah. was like she was seeking it out. Yeah. And I have to worry about something and I have to tick off a something. And so we have to retrain ourselves into being able to be still. There you have it. That was Emma Murray, episode 177. Make sure you check that bad boy out, part A and part B. Plenty in there, which is great. Uh, next up, we have 198, Bradley Dreiber. He is an incredible, incredible man. Now, Bradley um, is just a hustler, man. This guy doesn't stop. I reckon he messages me so much about so many ideas. He's doing so much cool stuff. And I just know it's going to click for this guy you know, very soon because he's just an absolute hustler and he lives life to the fullest. Brad, 
uh, unfortunately, well, unfortunately, but you know, he wouldn't put it that way, uh, was born with cystic fibrosis and he uses that to educate and inspire other people. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a pretty incredibly hectic story that he tells better than anyone. Um, but yeah, he, they basically thought he was, you know, not going to live too long and thought it was a bit of a, uh, short life expectancy. They thought he was going to die at 18. Um, all the thoughts sort of going through his and how it changed his life and how he's been able to sort of turn that into a positive and, and live every day, um, you know, inspiring other people. He has his own podcast as well. He's doing so many, so many cool things. And I think that, you know, for someone that came on this show, um, he has had so much feedback and we've had so much feedback about this episode, which is crazy. And I actually remember I was pretty sort of run down and crook going into that week and I was so close to going like, fuck, I just, I just don't know if I can do this. I'm, I'm cooked. And I remember sitting in there going, fucking hell, this guy's amazing. Like, I'm so lucky to be able to, you know, sit down and talk to him. So please make sure you give that one a listen and, uh, yeah, enjoy. But at 18, I probably had become a little bit complacent. Like, I had liver disease, so I knew I'd never drink alcohol. Yep. I had no interest in recreational drugs because I took 50 tablets a day to stay well. Yep. So I, I was never going to do anything to purposefully compromise my health. But at 18, I'd been so well. You know, I use the analogy that, you know, I was a sprinter my whole childhood when you're out and far ahead in a 100-meter sprint, you start looking around and like cheering to the crowd, hands are up, you go Usain Bolt, right? Yeah. Like you start to celebrate before the finish line. I was so far from being in a place where I could be complacent because you never can with this disease. But I started to like take my CF care a little less, like I was stopping doing the things that were keeping me really topped up, you know, the daily nebulizers and getting a little bit lazy with it. And so I was booked to go in for a routine surgery. So the sort of base of the esophagus, you've got these things called esophageal varices. And because I've got so much pressure in my liver and my spleen, they're enlarged and they're quite scarred. A lot of the blood that's meant to pass through them doesn't. And so it takes these alternate routes and goes and fills up in these varices around the esophagus. And the danger is because that's a high exposure zone for food that comes down. Let's say one of those gets a little too juicy. Mm-hmm you know, half chewed Dorito goes down and slices <laughs> yeah. that, which sounds so comical, <laughs> but it can happen, right? Yeah, yeah. and bleeds internally. And so you're like, now you're fighting for your life and you've got a couple of minutes until Sorry. you're dead. So at 16, they told me that they had a, a very good reason to believe this would be happening in my esophagus because of my liver and my spleen. And so they went down for the first time at 16, <clears throat> done a routine procedure, which is so cool. They go down with a little vacuum they like suck the vein into a vacuum and it pops up like a little balloon and they put an elastic band around it, which constricts the blood flow. It dies and falls off like two days later. Incredible, right? Fuck, yeah. So they started to do this to um, reduce the risk of me ever having one of those bursts internally. And so at 18, it was probably the third time I was ready to have this done and I was booked for this procedure. But the week sort of leading up, I got pretty crook, like fevers for the first couple of days, extreme hot, extreme cold. And then, excuse me, then it was probably like two days out, I started really coughing. And, you know, I was driving up with my mum and my dad for the surgery that day. And, mate, they've been divorced since I was 11, but great mates still, like best humans. And they would come, like, to every doctor's appointment with me, really, until, like, the last two years. Like, I'm such a little baby, right? (laughs) And they're driving me up, and I start coughing, like, really badly and consistently. And I'm like, I'm not well. And I get up there and the nurse who does like the pre-surgery check is like, mate, your blood pressure is like 180 over 100 and your temperature's through the roof. 
mate, it could be deadly to operate on someone in that state. We don't know what's going on in your body. There's no way in the world that you're going into a theatre today. You need to be in hospital. But as any busy city knows, like with Sydney, it was RPA hospital. There's no such thing as a spare bed. You know, they've almost got to kick someone out of hospital to get someone in. And so they said, go home. We'll call you when there's a spare bed. Jesus. And so I went home, was really sick the next day, just coughing on the lounge. And I had this particularly sharp cough. And as soon as I coughed, it was so sharp, I could taste something come up. And you know that taste when you bite the side of your mouth or you bite your lip or your tongue and you can taste blood into mm. your mouth? I could taste that, but a high volume of it. And the first thing that goes through your mind when you cough up blood is I've been told stories that if this ever happens, it's a matter of how quickly I get to the hospital, if I survive or not. So I run to the laundry and I start coughing up fresh blood into the sink and it's staining the sink. And as every little blood stains the stink and every cough continues to come up with more blood, just fear and anxiety washes over your body because you've only been told bad case scenarios. Like there's no such thing as a good story about coughing up blood. And so I yell out to my dad at the top of my lungs he races into the laundry, sees me coughing up blood, and within a minute we're in the car and speeding towards Wollongong Emergency, about 10 minutes away from home. Mm. I'm sitting in the car with like an empty ice cream container in case I start vomiting this up. And I'm looking at my old man in the car and I'm thinking, fuck, is dad going to watch me die in the car? Like, is he going to have the grief of, I didn't get him there quick enough? Could I have done more? Is he going to have to carry me over his shoulder into the operating room and hope to God someone else is skilled enough to save my life? And then it hit me that my mum and my sister aren't in the car. Like they're two people I adore. What if I never see them again? So luckily they worked at the same place at the time I got my phone out and I called and my sister answered. She was on reception. And I said, sis, I don't know what's happening, but I'm coughing up blood. Can you or mum meet us at emergency ASAP? I love you so much. Like it's the hardest call you'll ever make in your life. And I remember just sitting in the car and there was almost like, Brett spoke about it in his episode, mm. like that flight, fight or freeze. That freeze where you sit there and you're like, I'm completely out of control right now. It's how quick we get there. It's what my body decides to do. It's what maybe a doctor has a skill set to do when we get there. And as we're in that car, time freezes and I think, man, I'm 18. I'm 18. There's so much life that I've got to live yet. And I haven't even scraped the surface. I don't know what I want to do with my life. You know, I've got some passions, but I haven't figured it out yet. You know, I don't have a partner. I haven't found someone I loved. I haven't had a family. You know, I haven't grown up. I'm not a man yet. I'm only entering the world. And I thought, man, I don't want to go. This is too early. And I was so lucky that maybe my thoughts were a little extreme because things calmed down, my body stabilized. I got there and it was revealed that I wasn't bleeding from an esophageal varicity, but rather from my lungs. And as I went in, I ended up being diagnosed with really bad case of pneumonia, spent three or four weeks in hospital, lost about nine kilos, had the best set of washboard abs when I left, like just chipped away that baby fat. <laughs> and, um, and I learned a real lesson that you know, that's this Confucius quote that I love, that every man lives two lives. The second begins when he realises he has just one. And, mate, I fucking realised at 18. That was 198 with Bradley Drybar. I hope you enjoy it. Make sure you check it all out if you do. Next up, now, one of my favourite, uh, favorite, sorry, podcasts I did this year was with Mahmoud Fazal. I've been a fan of his work for so long. He's a crime reporter and an investigative journalist. Wow, I'm so happy I nailed that. Investigative journalist. 
um, and he used to actually be in the the crime world and, and made a, a bit of a flip to to join the the um, journalism side and start reporting on these things. And um, yeah, it's a pretty incredible story. He talks a lot about his own story, his personal story, um, but also you know the stories that he's reporting on. He spoke about how you know drugs get into the country. He speaks about um, you know police and other people going undercover or informing. Um, and he's doing heaps of awesome, awesome work. And we're going to get him on a fair bit, you know, whenever he has cool stories to um, to do that, which is really, really awesome. Um, found out a lot about, yeah, a lot of like major crimes and they'll have, yeah, a lot of similar backstories, but that's why he reports on them because, you know, they trust him to sort of tell the story properly, which is really, really cool. So check it out. But Proudest yeah. moments in your career. I think I think there's been so many, man. Like um, I'm really proud of all of all of my stories, like I'm not just saying that, just because yeah. like they're not like I, I don't I, I don't have a sense of ownership over my stories because they're such massive collaborations. Yeah. Like um, particularly like even when I was at Background Briefing making these podcast like long form audio investigations, you know the people that trust you with their stories, they're telling you their stories. Yeah. You're just kind of facilitating it and piecing it together in a way that's in a way that you can kind of easily communicate perspective and and the truth to to the public but by and large it's their story um and so there's many stories that that i've i've mm. been really proud of but i think the the, the reason uh, i'm so proud of these stories is because not not just because of what we were talking about earlier but because um i think the the, the problem with a lot of crime reporting is that it begins at the moment of the crime and then um, the subject or the the offender or the alleged offender, um, we, we, we traditionally have tried to read that person's entire life through the lens of that crime. Mm. So like that crime suddenly becomes the trigger to understanding everything about and every decision this person's ever made, which is so bizarre if you think about it. One like, moment. Yeah, mm. that, that like your whole life will retrospectively be coloured and overshadowed by this thing that you, you, you decide to do. And sometimes that decision isn't as premeditated as we think. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of these stories are really digging into how these people navigated early childhood, the adolescence and... Um, kind of trying to do the opposite everything interrogate everything that might have happened to them until that moment and then as a way of kind of illustrating why they might have done that and yeah there's there's several stories that that kind of stick with you but what the the big one would be um a program i did for for audible called no gangsters in paradise it was mm. kind of the first the first kind of crime war uh family crime war in western sydney between two um lebanese crime families the razak and the darwishes in the um 2000s and that kind of really played into a lot of the politics of um post 9 11 and how it was inflaming that dispute and using that dispute as a as kind of leverage to score political points for a stance that's kind of tough on crime um so yeah i was pretty happy with that and we interviewed one of the guys who was involved in that conflict um, while he was in prison. He got he got charged when he was like 20 years old, and he received I think it was triple life. So, um, and in New South Wales, life means life. It's never to be released. No chance of parole, no matter what you do. Jesus. So yeah, at the age of 20, to be told 
You're never getting out. This is your life. Yeah, he, t- he tells a really grim story where um, back in those days in the in the in on the cells of each prisoner, uh, they would have like the number of how many years they're doing uh, on the front of their cells. And he said when he was 20, like the, one of the youngest guys in that unit walking up to his cell, and his his cell was the only one with like no numbers on it. It's so fucking dark. That gives me genuine like goosebumps. Yeah, yeah, about that. yeah, yeah. Just and then when you're 20, like what were you doing when you were 20? Man, fuck. I wasn't doing anything. I was watching that, Nickelodeon. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> I wasn't doing shit that I want. I would want to be held accountable for for the rest of my life. Like, do you know what I mean? It's pretty pretty harsh. And it pretty is, and like even just to that to that point of when I was talking before about the working with the youth justice center there in Parkville, like sometimes what you, I think you're alluding to before and forgive me if it's not, but I was thinking the whole part about like when you get to know these kids that have been through this and this is not all cases, but some people that have got to this stage have never had a fucking chance to even do anything else. No. Like you're born into something that you, you can't change really. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, a lot of them. Mm broken homes like you can kind of you can read the play yeah as soon as you you hear their story i mean for me is this is one of the most haunting things about quote unquote crime reporting is the more of these guys who are at the highest levels of offending like people have been done for murders and so on involving gangs multiple murders and stuff they all have the same stories you know they've all come from highly dysfunctional homes yeah they had no opportunities from you know parents were addicts like you know yeah. really really didn't have didn't have much of a go from the get go yeah. and had no one that, that believed in them either yeah. and you know experienced a lot of shame a lot of abuse you know it all it all kind of can be traced back to incidents from childhood and For early sure. childhood and that that kind of set set these guys on a path that was never gonna and well, unfortunately, yeah. That was Mahmoud Fazal, 209. Next up, we have Tim Moss, number 211. Now, this was a really interesting episode. It was about loneliness, um, which is something that doesn't get enough credit that it you know deserves and how serious it is. But Tim Moss is, is a doctor. He's an he's a expert in loneliness. And we spoke a lot about, you know, what is loneliness, how it affects our health. And he actually spoke about health literacy, which is something that's super important. I've never really heard it um, explained in this way, but it's like understanding what a doctor, uh, you know, would sort of look at how you are and how you're connected to other people and all those bits and pieces too. So it's about like exercise, um, you know, like hanging out with good people, community, eating well, all those bits and pieces. And that sort of is health literacy and how much we can sort of, you know, be on top of that to, to be better. Um, we spoke about why loneliness is so such a big problem and also about two types of loneliness too. Like there's obviously loneliness when you're by yourself, but there's loneliness when you're in an area that's not connected to where your sort of true values are lie, which is really, really interesting. So check this sound out with Tim and uh, let us know what you think. Is health literacy probably like the first thing? Is that the first thing that we need to be probably educating um, young males on to? I, I think it's an important one. Yeah. Um, there's data. They know that, the steps to take. Sorry, how to, yeah. yeah. Mean, well, to start with, you need... You need literacy to start with. You yep. need to be able to read um, because that's how we get most of our information. Although one of the other things we know from our survey is there's a particular groups of 
males in Australia who are more likely to watch videos for their health information, mm. for example. But you need to be able to access the information. So you've got to be able to read it or see it online or hear it or, you know, so if you have sensory um, problems, then there's a bit more of a challenge there. If you have learning disability, then there's a bit more of a challenge mm. there just in terms of getting hold of the information. But then you've got to be able to understand it. Um, and sometimes health information is in jargon that just can't be understood. I get 20 years of work as a biomedical research scientist and a PhD, and I read some scientific publications and cannot make head nor tail of them. Mm. Um, that's why I like my job, is because I get to turn that gobbledygook usually into something that can be usable. Um, so, the, so the usability of the information is important. Yep. And then you've got to be able to turn that into action. So, you know, when you're a kid, um, your mum or your dad makes the doctor's appointments, right? At some point in your life, you get to the stage where you got to do that for yourself. But if you've not, you know, if you don't know the doctor's phone number, that's the, f the first hurdle. So you've got to be able to find that information. Um, for lots of males, they tend not to go to the doctor a lot men go to the doctor appropriately mm -hmm. let's not not pretend that men don't go to the doctor because we know they do um but because they use those services perhaps less frequently than some other people they they're not as familiar with them so they feel a little bit isolated when they're in those environments you know what sort of doctor do i need to see um who am i going to talk to when i'm when the phone's answered at the clinic um can i talk about this health problem with this person you know so understanding all of that uh who's the right person to see or the right organization to visit that's important as well mm. that's all part of health literacy and then when your doctor tells you okay you need to take this medication um and then you go to the pharmacist and they give you the medication and they tell you to make sure you take it with meals and all that sort of stuff following those instructions is actually important for the medicine to work properly right but if your health literacy is poor then you won't appreciate the importance of all that yeah. sort of stuff so you're not doing as best as you can to optimize your health incredible yeah 100%. It's, it's it's it makes it's, complete sense it makes it? complete sense when we you don't think about it. no you don't think about it at all so just back to that original point then around loneliness yep that seems extremely important to have yep. one health literacy yeah if we talk about loneliness in general, though, what, why do we think at the moment that's such a big problem in Australia? Yep. Is it the age demographic around that quite yeah, uh, across like all ages or is it yeah. mainly younger men? Or So we know there are some groups of people who are more lonely than others. Men tend to be more lonely than women. Older men, it seems like retirement age men, mm. they we, we think of elderly men who might no longer have their partner perhaps, um, who may be living in a home. We think of them as being socially isolated and lonely, but the the men who are you know retirement age and just beyond actually have fairly low levels of loneliness. And that's probably because they've stopped work. They're starting to spend more time with their friends. So they're actually you know on the rebound of a relatively more lonely time. It's younger and middle-aged men mm. who tend to be more lonely than young boys and that kind of makes sense because you're hanging out with your friends at school all the time and then we reach this stage of our life where we're going to work we might not have as much time to spend with our friends as we used to we might start a family and we are giving all of our attention and energy to 
the new small person in our lives and our friendships kind of drop by the wayside for a little while. And not putting the energy into those friendships, those relationships, they start to wither a little bit. It's a bit like tending the plants in your veggie garden. You gotta, you gotta give them a bit of attention every now and again to, to keep them going. And I think what happens for lots of blokes is we just kind of lose sight of the friendships because we gotta be dealing with the other stuff over here. You know, we got society telling us we've gotta be providing a secure environment for our families and putting bread on the table, all of those sorts of things can distract us from some of these things like our social relationships that keep us healthy. For sure. Um, I'm a young father of an eight-week-old um, boy, and I'm really lucky that I've got a great working environment. That's something yeah. I don't take for granted. I, I saw a, it was a graph, and I'm not going to talk academia. It was on Instagram. Um, yeah. it, was a, it was a graph that said it was how much time you spend with people, and yeah. the number one people was your workplace. Yeah. Like, and I was just like, wow, that's that's unbelievable. It's and not, incredible. You don't think it? about it like no. that. So it just shows how important that, that space is. But yeah. um, I've definitely felt... Um, you know, not that I'm upset about it, but there is there is times where you, you just can't do what you used to do. You know, you can't yeah. pop down for a beer with the boys. You can't That's stay right. as connected as you like. But I've tried to build a lot of those relationships with guys now, which has been hard with my mates that don't have kids versus my mates that do. Yeah. Because you've got a lot more in common. Yep. And it's a harder, you know, when you do things, you got to take your, your wife and your, your son everywhere you go. So you're not really going and hanging out with That's them as right. much as it's, it's really hard to do. So yep. for me, being aware of that has been something that's been really challenging. I can imagine a lot of other families going through the same thing mm. um, in that space and maybe not being as aware of it as possible yeah. can be can be isolating. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, you know, it, it all falls back on this humans being a social species and needing to feel like they're part of a group and like they have the support of not just one or two people but a group of people generally. And that's because back in the day, if you didn't have a group of people around you, then you couldn't reliably get food or you might get eaten by a bear and you know all that sort of stuff that being in a community protects you from and losing that sense of community is damaging that was tim moss ladies and gentlemen 211 and next up we have one of an awesome awesome guy and an awesome pod that we're lucky enough to get in uh dr russ harris this guy was unbelievable um, he was actually a connection of Jonah Oliver's, who is one of my favorite pods ever. And these two now are up there with sort of some of my favorite episodes I've been able to do. I definitely got a lot out of this, but um, Russ is a is a doctor. He's also an author of The Happiness Trap and a few other books, actually. He's done so many awesome things, but he actually speaks about anxiety and uh, he educates other doctors and psychologists how to treat anxiety. So yeah, it was, uh, it was really, really impressive to get this guy on the pod. I'm so happy that we could get him on and, and bless, but I, look, I, I want him to do the talking on this. I really couldn't recommend this episode anymore, and I really, really want you to go listen to it if you haven't already. 218 with Russ Harris. Here's a little exercise. So uh, I'll get your listeners to do it, and, and you can do it, and Darcy can do it too, and we'll kind of see how it goes. So just bring to mind a, a sort of negative thought that um, I often use the word hooks. You know, kind of thoughts and feelings hook us, and they kind of they pull our attention away from what we're doing, or they jerk us into self-defeating patterns of behaviour, or they just jerk us around. So I'll ask your listeners to kind of uh, pick a thought that hooks you. Let, let's start with a, a not good enough story, um, or a worry about something. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's. Uh, uh, 
whenever I have a new client, uh, I, you know, one of my routine questions is like, if I could listen into your mind when it's beating you up, what are the meanest, nastiest things I'd hear it saying, you know, and, and you know, if you could listen into my mind, you hear it say, well, it's not like this all the time, mm-hmm. but when it gets stuck into me, it's, you know, I'm fat, I'm old, I'm stupid, I'm lazy, I'm workaholic, I'm boring, I don't fit in, I'm different to everyone else, I'm weird, you know, I'm a bad dad. And, you know, if I could listen into your mind, Dill, when it's really really, really giving you a hard time. What are the, the nastiest uh, things out here it's saying? Mm. Uh, you're fraud. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, I get that one. I'm a fraud, yeah, <laughs> massive fraud. Um, yeah, pretender, uh, you, yeah, bad dad, you work too much, focus on the wrong things, selfish. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, there's and that. <laughs> plenty, plenty, of, plenty of them. Yeah, I mean, there's no shortage, and I'm yeah. sure everyone listening to this has got multiple versions of not good enough. So uh, let's work with that one. What I'm going to ask you to do uh, ask you and the listeners to is to just for about 10 seconds buy into that thought get that thought in your head I'm a bad dad or I'm a fraud or I'm a loser and for 10 seconds I want you to buy into it believe it as much as you possibly can it's going to be unpleasant but then I'm going to take you through a way to unhook from it so that it loses some of its impact so let's just do this now I'm, I'm, I've got one buy into it believe it don't push it away Don't challenge it. Don't try to replace it with a positive thought. Buy into it. Believe it. Let it hook you. And and if you're really getting hooked, you should feel uncomfortable. It's usually unpleasant when we're hooked. Now, the next step is to replay that thought with these words in front. I am having the thought that. I'm having the thought that I'm a bad dad. I'm having the thought that I'm an imposter. The next step is to replay it with a slightly longer phrase. I notice I'm having the thought that. I notice I'm having the thought that I'm a loser. So what happened as you did that? I suppose it was just noticing that it's a thought and it's not actually true. It's not actually... It's a thought. Yeah. 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 You know, and and so it's kind of... Um, that's usually the first skill that I mm. teach people is like there's a huge difference between I'm a loser and oh, I'm having the thought that, that I'm a loser, loser. you know. And we can go further with that. We can call it the loser story. Oh, there's the loser story. <laughs> we can go even further and go, oh, thanks, mine. There's the loser story. I've heard this one before, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, have a bit of a playfulness about it. Because uh, our mind only does this because it's it's misguided attempt to try and uh, help us, you know. It's kind of why does your mind beat you up? It's like one of those school teachers from a hundred years ago let's just beat this boy into shape <laughs> give him the whipping and then he'll sort himself out you know that, that's what your mind's trying to do right and and sometimes it works if you beat yourself up enough it does kind of beat you into shape but most of the time it just ends up paralyzing you and making you depressed and so forth so for sure so yeah just i invite people to just play around with that just when you're getting hooked just notice what the thought is that's hooking you and just reply ah i'm having the thought that and if you're still hooked go a bit further i notice i'm having the thought that i think from that well like is the most important part nearly the because let me try and speak here what i'm trying to say is it's so good to have that technique right mm-hmm. but the p- most important part is using it consistently yeah so yeah. it's like that trigger of going, all right the more you use that the more it'll come up and then eventually the goal would be that every time that thought comes up the more you just come back with that yeah 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you're never going to get perfect no. at this stuff. But it's just being realistic. There's, like, if, if you've got a a story, a not good enough story that's been showing up since childhood, I'm a loser or whatever, you know, for 30, 40, 50 years, you're not going to be able to get rid of that. But what you can do is, is lay down a new neural pathway that goes, ah, oh, there's the loser story again. Oh, there's the not good enough story. I know this one. Ah, oh, here's my mind beating me up to try and knock me into shape. It's okay, mind. I've got it handled. You know, that's what you can learn to do, you know. Mm. But, it, it, yeah, it's for sure it takes practice. It's a skill. It's like any skill. In terms of, like, acceptance um, therapy, what would be, like, one of the most common things? Is that what it is? Like, mainly the narrative that we tell ourselves, the people trying to – is that, like, how it's best effective? Well, there's, there's kind of three strands to it. So yeah. one strand of it is uh, learning how to – Open up and make room for difficult thoughts, feelings, emotions, yep. memories. Just learn how to let them flow through you. Yep. That's the sort of acceptance part. The second strand of it, which is equally important, is getting in touch with your values, your yep. heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave, how you want to treat yourself and others, what you want to put into the world, and using those values as a sort of compass to guide your actions and guide what you do in life. Um, and then the third part of it is really focusing your attention, learning how to focus your attention on what you're doing and engage in what you're doing rather than mm. kind of getting distracted. We were talking before the recording started out. We've all got ADHD these yeah. days. You know, It's really hard to focus attention and engage in what you're doing. So all of these three things come together. You know, If, if you asked me to define happiness, I wouldn't define it as feeling good or feeling pleasure or feeling contentment. I'd define it as living a rich, full, and meaningful life in which we feel the full range of human emotions, both the pleasant ones and the painful ones. Mm. And in order to build that sort of life, we kind of live our values, we do the stuff that's important and meaningful, we open up and make room for the full range of human emotions. You'll have love and joy, you'll also have fear and sadness, and we focus on and engage in what we're doing to get the most out of it. Uh, so those three things come together, and it, it really... I mean, they've used this across the whole spectrum of mental health issues. This works with depression and addiction and eating disorders and uh, anxiety disorders. And, um, it, you know, it, 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 obviously Jonah was talking about the world of sports performance, business performance. It's uh, it, it really seems to apply to every human being, no matter what, because you're always struggling with something. You'll love that one. Um, if, you, if you haven't already put down this episode and gone and listen to the full thing, I'll continue, and then you can come back. But next up, we have Alady Pullen, 216. Alady smashed the BNF this year. I think she came fifth in the BNF, uh, maybe fourth. Yeah, she came fourth. Wow. So, yeah, she absolutely killed the episode. Um, Das, you made a TikTok as well that went viral. It got like 1 billion views or something like that. It was crazy. But Alady's just an absolute champion. Um, incredible outlook on life and such a positive character. Unfortunately, Ali lost her her partner, uh, Chumpy Pullen, who was a world-class snowboarder um, with a shallow water blackout. And, um, yeah, it's, it was a pretty incredibly hectic story. But um, through that, they were able to grab um, some of Chumpy's uh, semen, technically, well, no, figuratively, his semen, and be able to do an IVF treatment, which has given him their daughter, uh, Minnie, which is, you know, it's pretty incredible, which I, I want her to sort of tell you the full story on that, but it's absolutely unbelievable. And she's one of the strongest women uh, I've ever had the, the pleasure of meeting. So really blessed to get her on the show. 
KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. I'd love to if you're happy to chat about your story and, and sure. what actually happened and, and, and those bits and pieces, but yeah, I'd love to to hear from your um, your side of the story on, the, on what happened. To Chump? Yeah. So... It was just like a normal day, 8th of July, 2020. Chump went, he, so yeah, pro snowboarder. He, he was a pro snowboarder, so he'd spent a lot of time overseas, but usually in our winter, he's home and he's gearing up for like the, um, like going to Threadbow and that kind of thing for our winter. Um, and then it was just like a really nice sunny day. He was getting into spear fishing a lot. He's like a waterman, grew up on the sea, sailing with his parents. Was that in? Tasmania. I saw a documentary with all like sailing around oh, as a yeah. young kid. Like oh. he grew up on the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and his family into boats, yachty. Like they're mad yachties. They sail the world. They yeah. love that shit. And he grew up on boats. Like as soon as he was born, they were like chucked him on a boat and just went around the world. And yeah, they just love that. And so he grew up like, yeah, surfing and being like real watery. And watery. <laughs> that's a good, that's that a good sounds okay. Um And then he, yeah, just went out spearfishing one morning. I remember him deliberating, looking out the window when I was lying in bed. And I remember him going, like, you can kind of see the horizon from our bedroom. And him being like, oh, it looks good out there. Like, should I surf or should I go get some fish? We were having friends come up. So mm. I think he was like, oh, let, I'll get some fish for dinner and we'll have a cook up tonight with like our mates who were coming up and I was like yes yeah, sick go go have fun kind of thing and then I went out for a walk that morning with our dog and yeah on our on that walk with my dog and I am not woo woo really like at all I've become a bit more woo woo but this shit like if yeah when people talk tell me stories about like you know psychics or things people have said them the spiritual things I'd be like shut up like yeah. I'm eye rolling but when I was on this walk, I was talking to my mate that was coming up and I felt just like this jolt in my heart. And I was like, what is going on? I had to like stretch out. I was like, I'm literally in pain. Like my dog and me stopped in our tracks, like looked at each other. And I was like, that is so weird. Anyway, I must be like feeling anxious or nervous or feel like I've got to do, you know, cook and clean and blah, 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 blah get the house ready for our guests or who knows. It was so weird. And then it just went away like that. And then I kept walking home. And then when I got home, my neighbor came over and said to me, hey Elle, I saw Chumpy going out for a spearfish this morning. I'm like, yeah. And he's, she, she goes, on the Facebook community page, I have, I, there, someone's just posted about a man being brought in unconscious just now, like literally it happened 15 minutes ago. And um, I straight away just went, oh, like, why the fuck are you telling me this kind of thing? Like, that's awful news, mm. but it will 100% not be chumpy. Like, don't be stupid. Like, and, like she, she was implying that it was him and I was just going, don't be silly, but that sucks. Like, should we go down there and see who it is? But anyway, I'm busy. See you later. 
And then I went back inside. My mum had actually just come over as well just to like visit. And I went back inside and something just hit me again and I went, fuck, like he could have had one of those shallow water blackouts. And he actually talks, had told me and his dad like the week before about his dad was like, oh, you know, a shark's scary when you're doing all this diving down there. Do you ever see any sharks? Like reef sharks, they love sharks. Mm. Like they love like, you know, when they're snorkeling and they see a shark, they're like, oh, it's a good day. And I'm like, that's a fucking bad day for me. I don't want to see a shark. But they love that shit. Mm. And Chump's like, nah, it's not sharks. you got to think about it. It's shallow, shallow water blackouts because like, you know, he get he's really fit. He can hold his breath for so long. And I think sometimes you just underestimate like, you know, what your body can handle and maybe he held his breath for too long and passed out under there. So I like to think he just literally went to sleep under the water. Maybe he saw a fish and was like, knew he needed to come up for air soon, but was like, I'll just push it a bit and get this fish. Who knows what happened down there? We'll never know. Mm. But yeah, he was found by a surfer who I've, who weirdly was at that golf day and he came up to me. For the first time? Oh my God, yes. Holy hell. I still need to contact him like, and have these chats, but it was all a bit crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he was found by a surfer and brought into shore and, yeah, the lifeguards worked on him and basically, yeah, <laughs> basically he was like unrevivable and it like literally to the, like, the time literally reverts back to exactly when I would have been walking and felt that chest pain as to like when he was under there and when he would have been found and then brought in and then all that. So I believe that I was just walking along one day and Chumpy fell asleep under the ocean and my heart just fucking broke into a million pieces and I felt that. My dog had felt it too. We were both like, what just happened? That was weird. And then, yeah, so that is what happened and I've never seen him again. He just literally walked out the house one morning with his snowboard um, diving shit on and literally never came back. And I, it baffles me so much that I honestly, for the first year after, every single day thought he is just going to walk back in that door. Like I was so used to him being away. He used to travel for months at a time and I'd be alone. Like oh, long distance, no problem. I, I, I love being independent and doing my shit. I was in so much like denial and shock and just I didn't cry for like a month easily maybe more like I was so confused I I I think yeah I, I seriously like sometimes think I would not be surprised if he just walked through the door right now I'd just mm. be like hey chum what where the fuck did you like what hey it's the weirdest thing ever I can't even cannot even tell you I think if I had of seen his body like my mum my mum came to me came with me sorry to go down to the beach and like see what was going on so we went down to the beach and I asked the police my mum just ran down the beach I and it was all blocked off and I asked the police officer standing kind of like back from the beach well what's going on down there there was so much shit happening there was like fireys like cameramen already there and stuff like that I'm like what's going on down there and he's like um, someone's being revived or something. And I said, my partner was out there diving this morning. Um, and yeah, I can't, I can't get onto him, but like, he's probably still out there diving. Like, you know, that, that's the thing. Cause like, yeah, I'd obviously tried to call him and, um, but it had only like, it had only been an hour and a half or something since he left. So that's normal for him to be diving for like three hours and stuff. And the cop just looked at me and said, 
does he have any tattoos? And he had only just gotten a new tattoo of an axe on his ribs. And I was like, oh, couldn't think. I was like, he's got some, you know, like on his arms. And the guy's like, "Mm, any more? And I'm like, honestly couldn't remember because this one was new. And he's like, anything on his, like, you know, chest? And it just hit me and I just went, fuck. And I just didn't want to say yes. I was just like, fuck. And then he just literally looked away, like like could not face me and just bailed kind of into the car that he was near. And my mum ran up the beach with just this face and I don't think we just, I still don't even think we've said to each other like, chump is dead or chump died or like, I just looked at her and she just looked at me and she just grabbed me and we had to walk around to this surf club and chat to the cops and stuff. But it was just the weirdest floating feeling, like just what is life? Like what, this cannot be real. Like how is he not breathing? How is he not at the beach? Like how is his eye, what? I don't, I just, crazy. I can't imagine. It's just. I still can't imagine. I honestly can't imagine. I just like feel like it's not real. And when. When this happens to friend, like when this happens to people, and they come to me and they tell me horrible things that have happened to their partner, because mm. you know I feel like yeah. I'm this widow girl now that I get messages all the time and like with these crazy stories of, oh, this happened to my partner today. Like, what am I gonna do? Da da da. I'm I'm just like, oh my. Like they tell me these. I hear crazy stories all the time, and I'm, I don't. I just like cannot fathom. I'm just like, I don't. I don't even know what to say to you, and I should know. Mm. People come to me for advice, and I'm just always shocked. And I watch movies of this happening, the same thing, like or worse circumstances or better circumstances, and I'm just like brought to tears. I just like sometimes cannot real cannot realize that it's like my life as well. It's the wildest thing ever. Two sixteen, Alady Pullen, put down your phones, go have a listen to that bad boy. It's absolutely incredible, and can't thank Alady enough for that. Next up, another fan favorite we've had on the show, Hugo Two V One Eighty Three. Hugo is a legend. He's been on the pod twice now, and I just can't thank him enough for his, you know, openness and honesty. Uh, if you haven't heard of Hugo, he's a prostate and bowel cancer advocate. Um, you know, he he's so open and honest about where he's at, which at this stage was in a really try trying place. He was looking to do um, uh, it's, it's actually a fecal transplant. I can't explain that, but basically, it's how to get healthy poo back into um, a person to be able to, you know, start their sort of fecal again? Is that... Yeah, the guys look at me sort of... It was... Look, I'd really recommend listening to the episode. I genuinely would. He'll explain it a lot better, but Hugo is one of the coolest guys I've had the pleasure of meeting um, through the podcast, and yeah, so happy for him. He's actually... You know, I'm happy to announce this now because he's announced it on his own social media, but him and his wife are actually expecting uh, their first child as well, which is really, really exciting too. So just shows what an awesome, awesome um, family they are, Hugo and Amber, which is really special. So congratulations, guys. With current stuff coming up now, so we spoke about before we get into the incredible work you're doing with Gus and, and um, Gotcha for Life, current circumstance at the moment, is it a bit of a waiting game? Look, I'm in a bit of a... Um not the best uh, best place as far as unknowns. And yeah. look, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm, my health isn't great at the moment and, and often I do put on a bit of a, a front. And I think I do that for a couple of reasons because I, I hate putting my Amber or my family through through more pain. And 
I know it kind of sounds a bit hypocritical, but there are times where I probably won't fully disclose how I'm really feeling um, to them because I do worry about them. And it comes that, you know, the empathy side of me worrying more about them than than me. Um, but I'm in a position now where, it, look, I go to the bathroom a lot, you know, 12 plus times a day um, and in significant pain. At the moment, when I go to the bathroom, it's literally like bloody razor blades um, and it's some days I'm quite literally curled up in the bathroom floor for like half an hour in so much pain. I have to have like a, you know, bath with Amber, runs me a bath at 2am just to sit in the bath with Epsom salts and like take some plexia and just try and get through that pain. And it's not a great quality of life when you're, when you're kind of in that situation and you can see Amber having to quite literally like nurse me and it's not great. And sometimes I do get pretty over it and my mental health gets in a pretty, um, pretty bad way where so I get a little bit emotional sometimes where I um sometimes you kind of go, I don't have that strength to keep going. Mm. And it, it, it gets tough, but you, you find a way. So I get a bit emotional. Yeah, you find a way to, to, to keep going and you realise that, like I said, I reflect on those people who aren't as lucky as I am. And I go, shit, I'm, I need to keep going. You know, in Amber's vows, she read out, I'll never give up and she knows that and I won't ever give up. Um, but there are times where you just go, fuck, what, what's this quality of life? And it becomes pretty difficult. Um, but then the motivation that I get and the strength that I get to keep going is purely for others and Amber and my family and to know that if I'm not doing it for me, do it for them. Do it for them because if I can, you know, get through this next week, month, years and, you know, get through that and make them happier and, and feel more sense of optimism and hope then it's going to also in turn make me feel better and I've just been faced with a, a decision where I either have some more surgery um, which will mean getting rid of some rest of my disease small bowel um, and then getting a permanent bag which is a stoma which is going to ha- there's lots of unknowns in how that stoma would be because I have such a shortened bowel mm-hmm. that it might mean constant it will fill up very quickly and so I'm not sure what my quality of life will be there either but it'll eliminate some other stuff like the anal pain and the fissures and stuff I have but as I found out yesterday which is pretty bloody incredible there's a new course of course of uh, treatment that I can um, I can trial and it is very much a trial and it's sounds pretty full on it's called a fecal transplant and it's um I must admit, when I heard that yesterday afternoon from my specialist, I was like, what the fuck? Like a fecal transplant, it seems pretty full on. Um, and quite literally, you get healthy donors who have with healthy stools and, and, and shit. Essentially, yeah. I'm just going to be up front yeah, and say what it is. <laughs> it's essentially a shit transplant. Um, it's a shit transplant. <laughs> That's a great pun, by the way. Um, it's a shit transplant. But that being said, he... Um, he, you got to try and make light of it, right? right? But it, it's look. He actually said, as far as treatment goes, it's as kind of as natural as you can get. Which, you, well, yeah. If you really think about it, and it sounds a bit. Hey, I'm still trying to get my head around it. Don't get me wrong. When I told Amber this, and she's a nurse, and she's used to kind of cleaning up bloody old people's, you know, all sorts of stuff, and she's just like, "Oh, that sounds great. Go ahead, do that." Um, but I'm just getting my head around it. But I um it's kind of as natural. Like think about antibiotics and yep. steroids and all these treatments and immunosuppressants and chemo that you lose all your hair and all sorts of shit goes on. This is pretty natural. Um, as weird as it sounds, Australia is one of the first countries in the world that's just been given, um, like government approval to do it, to do this. Um, and quite literally I get someone's healthy fecal matter and they infuse it essentially into my gastrointestinal tract. And over time, 
my bacterial growth in my very fucked up bow will essentially, you know, he explained it like a forest. So picture like a dying forest. And instead of like probiotics and all this good gut health, we always talk about, I might be very slowly replanting a couple little trees, but that's just going to take years uh, and it might not even be effective. But he talks about this as being quite literally replacing an unhealthy forest with a brand new thriving forest. And you can do that in a matter of weeks. You can see results. Um, they've done initial trials that have been positive, which is great. Limited results with people with J pouches and, and my current setup. But he said um, basically a room full of smart specialists at St. Vincent's in Sydney all came up to the conclusion that this, it would be a shame if I didn't try this. And surgery for them is the last resort. So for me, it's like, let's give this a crack. So I only found out, hot off the press, I only found out yesterday that this is this is what I'm going to try. And it's... um. As soon as I get my head around it, it's funny. I messaged my old man though and said, um, I might be having a shit transplant, dad. And then he said, um, he's always like, he's had colonoscopies in the past where, you know, the doctor said you've got a, you know, pristine colon and all this sort of stuff. And he's like, maybe I should be a, um, a poo donor with like the little emoji kind of doing those ones. I'm like, that'd be weird. I think getting one thing's getting a stool from someone you don't know, but then like my dad, how cooked is that? Getting my dad's. Anyway, so sorry for anyone listening to this whilst they're having breakfast. But um, anyway, it's quite uh, crazy what the advancements in medical and treatments and technology can do, right? It's unbelievable, man. And I just want to say this. I love you. I love you. And it, um, yeah, I just want to say that. It's super cool, mate. Love but what you're going through and what you shared before as well, like I can't stand here for a minute and say that I know what you're going through at all because I don't, but the amount of people that you've touched and you're sharing in the pot, like th- this will impact every single person that listens to this today. Like you're going to change everyone's life from just hearing this today. Like Darcy and I will be changed forever from hearing what you said before. So your impact on this world is not, uh, is not small. Thanks man. And it, and it will continue to be bigger. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Man. So that's huge, man. Don't, don't, um, don't forget that. Hugo 2v 183. There it was. Next up, we have the BNF winner, the best and fairest winner of the year, Nathan Buckley. Wow, what a cool guy. Honestly, what a cool chat. Like, I'm so proud of this chat, um, a lot like Joel Selwood's chat as well, which we'll talk about in a moment. But, you know, you get these guys on, you could easily talk about their footy and all these other things. But we hardly spoke about anything like that. You know, he spoke about his relationship with his dad, um, you know, how that sort of affected the person he is today, both positively and negatively. Um, he spoke about his leadership, spoke about, you know, a bit about footy, but it was just a really interesting chat about life. And like, yeah, he won the BNF. So guys, I think there's no reason that I need to explain this anymore. Just go have another listen to it. My, my central influence in my life was my relationship with my dad. He was, he was a hard man. And when we used to kick the footy, we, we drilled, you know, 20 on the left, 20 on the right, you know, get it right. You know, not, not good enough, push ups, get back up, let's go again. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't kicking like having <laughs> yeah. goals here, snap a few bananas. It wasn't. It was we were getting. Dr- I was getting drilled. Yeah. So when it got to footy, and Dad was loved footy, footy coach. When it and Dad was really hard on me, like I was the example of what not. I felt like I was the example of what not to do in all my junior teams when Dad was coaching. Was he pulling you out of the circles and? Well, yeah, like you got to go harder. Yeah, we'll see. Like again, and he used to yell it out over the field whether he was coaching or whether he wasn't. I'm pretty sure I heard him in a 60,000 um, capacity crowd at the MCG one day. <laughs> like you can, he's that sort of voice. like, And it's like, oh, shoulders go up and you sort of. But 
when I tell this story, I, I know I'm being really harsh on Dad because this is just my recollections of it. The reality is that he moulded me, drove me, and loved me the best way that he knew how right through right through my childhood, and I'm eternally grateful for it. At the time, I didn't want to go any. I didn't want to be anywhere near him. I hated him. I didn't feel like I was loved by him, and so that's the that's perspective, you know. Like, it was hard because he was making life hard and I wanted to escape that and we all want to escape that. So I grew up eventually getting to early days in footy and breaking through so at 18, 19 at Port Adelaide and then 20-year-old into Brisbane and then 21, so late Brisbane, and then into my Collingwood um, journey and, and the start of you know, a pretty long sort of experience in AFL footy to end of the middle of 21 so 30 years pretty much but the first half of my playing career was if I'm a good footballer I'm worthy as a person or if I play well I'm worthy and if I play shit I'm not worth a pinch of shit so that was that was the way that my very myopic view of the world so I put so much pressure on myself to be good I worked hard to be good I thought that if People noticed me on the footy field and if they said I was a good footballer and, and that I was contributing to the team, that I was a good person. And I thought if I had a shit game or if I didn't train hard um, or if I had a bad month or a bad year, like then I was just letting I, – I was a, I was a worthless. Mm. So that just meant with that drive and with that motivation and with that seed that was planted deep in there somewhere – I had no time for anyone else. I was just looking at me and I was just looking at my, my worth as a person. So driven by that, I just had no, my, it was all inward focus. It was all how are people observing me? What does this say about me? Which is where that selfish, I think the selfish tag came from because I was, I was so focused on what I was doing and so concerned about how that, what that would say about me as a person that. I had no time for anyone else. And, and even captain in 99 and 2000, I was still thinking that way. So I was a shit leader. Like I was a really poor leader because I just didn't have the outward focus. My outward focus was do it my way and you're not doing this, you're not doing that and do that better and do this better, which was the way my dad communicated to me. That was the way I started as a, as a leader and it's just so ineffective. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because isn't it strange sometimes, and I'm, I suppose this will relate to a lot of things through the chat today, but how, for me, this relates that sometimes our biggest weaknesses are also our biggest strengths. Mm -hmm. And the self-awareness piece is how you can use the two to your advantage. Yeah. And that drive and that you had, it's like you don't want to lose that, but you just want to harness it in the right direction. Yeah, tra you tra tra trauma makes you stronger. There's no doubt. Trauma. trauma. You, you might not have been a good player though, if you no, weren't doing well, that. Well, like I, if you were worrying about hanging out with mates and making long-term friends, like I was. Yeah. It didn't last very long. But there's no doubt. But we don't know what that um, alternate sort of reality yeah. butterfly effect where that's going to take you, even in one moment, let alone an attitude. For sure. But I'm still sort of trying to unpack that, how you can enjoy the journey and the hard work that goes with it and endure the struggles and push through the struggles that you face. And this isn't just in footy, it's in life, whilst having this, you know, this singular purpose of you know, wanting to prove something to yourself or to someone else or, and, or being demented in some form or some shape around an outcome. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether you can have your cake and eat it. I, I think, yeah. I, but I see a guy like so. I see a guy like Pendles, 
and he's really single-minded and determined in regards to what he wants out of life. Every area of his life, he seems to be so purposeful in what he does. But I admire the fact that he's he's like a duck on a pond. He'll be doing the work, but he looks like it's effortless. And it's not. It looks like it's effortless. And And he looks like he's balanced. And I'm sure he's not all the time. I'm sure he feels like, yeah, at times it's too much of this or too much of that or not enough of that. And I reckon he just he just self-moderates really well from the outside and obviously spending a lot of time around him as a teammate, as a senior teammate early, to, early days and then as a coach. Just look at the bloke and think, well, he's, he's got the mix right. He enjoys life, but he's a high achiever. Yeah. He works hard, but he rests and recovers. He doesn't live a, you know, he, he's, this, his social life is pretty moderate. But it's he spends it with the people that he knows that he needs to spend it with. It's sort of like he's he's just got it all. It's like he's got it all sorted. See, Trent Cotchin would look seem to me like a guy who, and I don't know Trent that well, but it seemed to me like a guy who went from yeah you know, tunnel vision to open, open hearted, open minded, and enjoyed his footy a, little, a lot more as a process. I, that was similar to me. I'm seeing that in Zach Merritt at the moment. I don't know him that well, but I'm seeing a guy who's happier to be rough around the edges and and sort of smell the roses a little bit more and enjoy the journey and it looks like he's playing as good a footy as he's ever played as a mm. result but yes how do you get there without going through without going through all that trauma at the start 197 nathan buckley big bucko um appreciate you mate thanks so much and um can't wait to sort of continue next year i hope we can come back on next up actually you know what i'm going to the other one first because it's a little bit like nathan but actually no i won't because we're sticking to the order of this i just realized 193 brett canallan this is darcy's favorite episode of the year unbelievable his dad found it brett's story on uh i think it was on prime stan it was on stan and um yeah brett's got an incredible story he was attacked by a shark um and i don't want to give too much away on this because brett tells it unbelievably but yeah, talks about the vivid memories, um, talks about, you know, what sort of transpired after the event and what's it, what's it, what he wants to do post the event, which is just unbelievable. And again, he's one of those guys that he's coming for, you know, an hour and a half, two hour chat, but we sort of speak quite regularly now. And um, he's a great guy, which I really appreciate. So check that one out. 193 with Brett Canellan. I haven't done a great justice of selling that episode, but I, I really shouldn't have to. Please go and listen to it. I, I often hear from people where they'll be like, that day, did you know it was going to be you know, an interesting or special day. And apart from it being the two-week anniversary of your birthday, there was nothing really <laughs> too special about yeah. about that day. Um, I think when you look at a day like that through the lens of what were some, some things I could have looked out for that could have told me that it was going to be a different day, you're going to notice some things. Um, it's either the day where nothing happens and then that comes out of the blue or you could look back and you notice a, a thing or two where you're like, oh, maybe I should have taken that as a, as a sign. But... I guess that's just the lens that you look at these things through. Um, it, it for me was a regular day, except for it wasn't really a regular day. I'd had a bad day at work because the night before the shop that I was working at, the surf shop had been broken into. Mm. So my day was spent kind of dealing with the breaking, talking to police, cleaning up glass, doing all that sort of stuff. And the reason I went for a surf that afternoon is because I was like, had a shit day, need to feel better. What makes me feel better is surfing. So was driving home that afternoon. Um, I knew I'd have enough time to get home because I lived about 45 minutes away from where the shop was. So I was driving home, called my good friend Joel, and I was like, hey, I'm just going to go for a surf out Bombo, which is my local beach. Um, I knew there was going to be waves there. So I was like, I'll go down there, called Joel to go for a surf just because it's nice to go surfing with someone. 
Um, I specifically called him 45 minutes before I was going out there because he's notoriously late for stuff. <laughs> he, um, he's that person. Uh, everyone's got a friend like this. I don't know. Are you this friend? I think I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's always either late or they just don't show up. So, so that's Joel. And that's why I called him with plenty of notice to go surfing. Um, and he was like, oh, I'm about to go for a swim at the river, but might go for a surf. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll see you down there. Got to the beach that afternoon. Really nice afternoon, actually. It's starting to get a little bit cooler that time of year, especially sort of where, where I live, like starting to be colder in the afternoons where usually the surf is better because of that for, for some reason. But went out there, was enjoying a few nice little waves. Even though I called Joel 45 minutes before, he still rocks up half an hour late. And so <laughs> he eventually comes out after about half an hour and we're both just sharing a few waves together. I was telling him about the break-in talking about the day I'd had, just catching up. And we were we decided to surf probably about 200 meters down the beach from where everyone else was, mm. uh, mainly just to get a few uncrowded waves. And I knew the waves were a little bit better there, but everyone tends to just congregate right up in the northern corner. So I was like, we'll go to surf down the beach. And it was just us. So we were sharing waves just one after the other, having a good time. Um, Joel catches a wave, that, like he gets a pretty long one down the beach and he's He's like on his way sort of paddling back out. And I was sitting there just reflecting on the day, like kind of thinking, well, for how bad today has been, at least I've been able to come for a surf, been able to chat to a mate. Like I'm feeling heaps better than what I did when I got that phone call at 2 a.m. about the shop break-in. So I'm having these thoughts, looking back towards the beach, like again, not lovely afternoon. This is like the picture that I have is looking back. It's like the, the beautiful, like the mountains behind there, sun's just starting to set, a few nice mm -hmm. clouds. And then from like out of nowhere something hits me from my right side and i had no idea what it was but it just hit me with so much force that it throws me off my board and i land in the water and before i can like look around and see what it was or where it came from or anything like that i look down and there's this shark biting my left leg and that moment where like the the reality of the situation like the enormity of what's happening where that sinks in is just like you almost like zoom out and it's like time stops. There's an interesting thing that happens because in, in that moment where like you're frozen, it's like the freeze part of the fight, flight or freeze like response that a lot of people have. And you, you, spoke, you speak to most people who've been through, I don't know, any, anything, say like a, a car accident or something like that, where people will always talk about that moment where time slows down. That's, that's that freeze response. And it's an interesting response because a lot of people think that freeze is like giving up or, or giving into the situation. But I found out later on, it's actually just like an information gathering exercise. It's actually fight or flight on hold mm -hmm. while you're taking the information to then make the best decision after that. So that's why people can have really vivid memories of these things. And for me, the vivid memories are like the feel of the shark skin, which is really rough, like sandpaper. Um, there's the complete absence of sound. It's like, I can't hear the water splashing. I can't hear my, like, I know I'm screaming for help in this moment based on what Joel said later on, but I have no recollection of that. But then there's the, like, looking into the shark's eye, like, and there's just, you're looking, the visual of it is definitely the most striking of, of this recollection because there's something about that moment where you realize, like, your worst nightmares, are, it's happening like you're you're in it and there's there's nothing that you can really do in that moment the the thing about about sharks that i always make sure that i say is that you can't argue with them you can't tell them to stop you can't reason with them <laughs> like as a surfer this is your worst nightmares coming to fruition right in front of you and there's nothing that you can do about it so these like this information 
gathering exercises happening. And then you're like, all right, well, what do I do now? And the first thing that I do is I click into that fight response because everyone's like, punch the, shark, punch the shark. Like that's what you're supposed to do in a situation like this. And I have that thought and the, the natural enemy to the punch is water. So, <laughs> so I go to punch it and it's just ineffective. Yeah. And sorry, just to, is it still attached to it's this still, So it's just grabbing onto my leg. Um, there's, it's not like thrashing me about. It's, it's like it's grabbing me and, and kind of just holding me. So I go to punch it. That doesn't work. Kind of like freeze again. I'm like, well, now what? There's only one response left, which is flight. And this is where I make the biggest mistake that I make that day, which is to pull away from the shark. And that might sound like the common thing that you do. Like, I mean, if if your hand's on the table and a spider crawls across it, if you're afraid of it or whatever, you, you're probably going to pull away from it. And that's that's what I do. I, like, I pull away from the shark. The reason that this is a mistake is because when you do that, it's not like the shark lets go. And it's like, all right, off you go. You obviously don't want to be bitten right now. It holds onto that leg. And as you pull away from it, it just separates that large chunk from your body. And I immediately say to myself, just don't look down. Like I, I know what's happened and I, I don't want to look at what that's like. And there's two reasons for that. <laughs> One of them is to not go into shock and to not lose more blood than what I'm already about to. But I now have the window of escape. Like flight is in full effect now. Mm -hmm. So I focus on trying to make the most of that opportunity and I just start swimming towards the shore as, as hard as I can. And I only get maybe 20 meters further in and I... I'm just focused on getting the shore. I'm just like staring at the sand, just being like, I need to get there. I need to get there. I need to get there. And I have this thought like just come through out of nowhere. I'm like, what if it comes back a second time? Hope you enjoyed that one with Brett, 193. Next up, we have Joel Selwood, 219. Do I need to say any more? Joel Selwood. For all those footy fans out there, you know Joel Selwood. But this episode isn't what you think. We don't talk about all the premierships and all those sort of things as much as, you know, it would have been awesome to. We just got, uh, you know, really talking about his personal life and um, something that we both bonded over was our fertility journeys and, and journey to fatherhood and Joel and Britt's journey through IVF. And, um, yeah, it was a pretty hectic, uh, you know, experience chatting with someone because we both sort of had never really spoken about it super publicly. But, yeah, I, I really loved this episode and had a lot of feedback since from other uh, you know, males and females, but especially, you know, females and males sending it to their partners back and forward to sort of chat about um, fertility and stuff like that, because it isn't something that, you know, a lot of guys do talk about. So, um, yeah, if you do know anyone, send this episode over, hopefully it can help out in some way. But yeah, check it out. At that period as well, you'd sort of had just come out talking about yours and Brit's um, journey to, to get Joey and to have yep. him in your life. And at that period, Jazz and myself had also been through um, our own journey in, in IVF and, and conceiving pregnancy. And that was the first time I'd ever been like, I'd always had respect for you of what you'd done, but I was like, fuck, man, like I'm not alone in this journey. I'm not like the only one who's been through this stuff. If this yep. can happen to Joel Salwood, the captain of Geelong Cats and, and Brit and their life, then it can happen to anyone. Yeah, it's uh, one that we... It was, it was to be honest it was writing the book mate and yeah. um when i did it i wrote the chapter about ivf and then i um sat through it with pete ryan who helped me also write the book and i said oh pete i, I, I haven't done it properly and then tried it again with him and then it was like nah we're not going to get this right we sort of need to bring brit in because uh, that just you know tells the full story of everything too so um but the the thing about like 
I wanted to be a footballer when I grew up. Like I'm going back, I was uh, six, seven years old. I just wanted to play footy, but I wanted to be a dad too. And I wanted to run in the Olympics. Unfortunately, I don't think, I, th- I may have to let that one go. In Paris, is, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so, you know, it was really like, I didn't know when I was going to do it. And I look back on my time now and I, I didn't need to do it through um, my time when I was playing, but I would have, you know, Britt and I would have loved to. We got married uh, the start of 2020 um, and just like life, we thought you get married, you have a little honeymoon period, and then, you know, you look to become mum and dad. Um, for us, it was the start of COVID too. So we didn't know what that was going to do to us, but, you know, we tried for a period of time and then realised that it maybe might not happen just an easy way. So. We spoke to our GP who we were away with at the time um, up on the Gold Coast uh, within the footy camp and um, and he said, oh, look, have you, you know, have you had a chat, you know, do you know where your sperm's at and all this? And this is the first time that I've, you know, ever heard of sort of going to, you know, a bank and trying to find out, you know, what's going on with all that. So fertility issues, we just didn't think that it was probably a problem um, for us um, or even thought about it. But then when we look back on it, we would be like, oh, okay, there's maybe things in the loop that maybe should have got us onto it. We could have kept banging away. Probably shouldn't use that word. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we may have been lucky to get there. But, um, but yeah, w- we found, we took the track that we should probably head down the IVF if we were going to try and fast track things. Mm. Um, and we, we had that advice from the doctors. It's crazy um, when you go through something like that. You have this like relationship with your wife mm. or your partner, and I feel like that first step of like those meetings with doctors and stuff like that, your relationship just goes to this weird new level yeah. of like, fuck, like we're really in this together. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, there's yeah. some really weird conversations that unless you've um been through that and not that you'd wish it upon anyone but there is some beauty in the level of connectiveness that you have through that period as hard as and challenging it is oh mate, early yeah, days, yeah. well summed up because i i think back to the time now and you know getting married is great but you know really you're signing a piece of paper and then two weeks later people go you know do you feel any different not really like i've got the ring on my finger and that's about it um through those meetings uh that you talk about with doctors and um cancelers so mm. that was my first whack um you know and um from brit i must say so to go through an ivf process as you would know you we were doing it down in melbourne so we had to we did it by phone interview mm. brit's a school teacher and i just asked her i was at the footy club this day uh, working away i said oh do you mind coming down to the footy club so we can have that meeting um with the cancellor meaning her leave work come do that and i just didn't read the play that well you know i had we had the private room at the footy club um soundproof and all lucky uh because she hit me between the eyes going hey he's got this footy shit going on and i have probably a fair understanding of what ivf's going to be but he's got no fucking idea Mm. and and with that it was like i better get with the program you know she's calling me out here to say be with her every step of the way so any meeting from then onwards you know whether it be down in melbourne or anything like that i just had to give the footy club the heads up 
once. That was basically it. I said to um, Scotty and um, Simon Lloyd, who was a footy manager at the time, I said, hey, we're going to, Britt and I are going to do this thing, IVF. Um, it's down in Melbourne. Going to need to take days off, uh, you know, every now and then or a morning off. And they're like, yeah, go for it. And I didn't even, at times, it was more me just then passing on to sort of the guys that were looking after my running program and just making sure that my body was ticking over, just say, I won't be in for the morning. And they're like, yeah, fine. Mm. Um, and with that, mate, it's sort of like, I just got lost in the IVF clock. You know, the footy clock was second. Um, and you would know what the IVF clock is, you know, all involved around a period. And then you go on this cycle. Um, and for the girls, you know, they live it every minute of the day. So for Brit and Juzzy, it was like, um, I don't know, Brit loves school. You know, it was our outlet. So we would have an em embryo transfer um, down in Melbourne. And then I'm like, okay, home now, rest up. She's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going back to school. I was going back to footy, you know, drop her off at home and then back to footy. She's like, I'm going back to school. And, you know, I just had to listen to her, you know, all through these periods. You know, if she wanted to do those things um, and felt well enough, then, you know, just do it. I had a lot to learn. <laughs> deal. Grew up with uh, three brothers, no sisters, uh, a really tough mum. So not in a bad way, but she was just rock solid. Um, but yeah, learned plenty about, you know, the woman's body and, um, and what they go through. And there you have it, guys. That was best of education and inspiration. Now, if you haven't listened to our Teach Me Please series as well, we didn't really recap any of them today, but make sure you go over and listen to them too if you're into this sort of thing, especially, you know, education. There's so many cool episodes talking to industry leaders about things in particular, giving the 101s and just learning about topics, which is really, really interesting. As I said, uh, we, you know, we did episodes on how to buy a house, how to taste wine, how to sleep, how to meditate, um, you know, how to taste olive oil. Like, what is olive oil? Um, all those bits and pieces, which are really interesting. So I know you will enjoy them and let us know what you think and let us know what you'd like to hear. IllyXX, we love you. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble.